Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the FIFA 23 to my FIFA 2004. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. Justin, how are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. It's nice to have football back. I know lower league fans won't be happy with that statement, but Championship football is where it's at. Is it really? Is it really? Are you disrespecting the non-league teams, are you, Justin? I absolutely am, because this is a Championship <laughs> podcast and uh, disrespect to every other league out there. Fair enough. <laughs> On the show this week, we're joined by Ben James from the Cardiff Podcast. View from the Ninian. Ben, are you well? Very well, thank you. How are you guys? I'm great, thank you. Also with us is Blackpool writer Jane Stewart. Jane, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the next international break already. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for a bit later on when we dig deep into everything going on at Blackpool. But welcome to the number one championship specific podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. We're going to run through all the games in the championship from the past weekend, talk about some of the news from the past few days, and then we'll finish off with the Sam Grayson's hateful eight right at the end. But Mark Hudson won a point at home to Burnley in his first game as interim boss of Cardiff. It finished one all thanks to a late equaliser by Callum Robinson. How was the game? Yeah, the game was good. Um, I think going into it, we weren't really sure what to expect under the new kind of uh, tutelage of, of Mark Hudson, but he was part of the previous um, kind of uh, coaching staff with Steve Morrison. It was much of the same in the first half, a bit lacklustre. Um, didn't create too many chances, didn't worry their keeper too much. Um, obviously, Burnley scored quite close on to the second half. And I think from there, it kind of spurred us on, really. I think the second half was a much improved performance. We were um, passing it around well. We were getting into the final third, but it was only in the final third with things fall apart. The, the kind of crossing was was a bit lacklustre. We, we'd get to the kind of byline and the cross would either get not get past the first man or be cleared. But then Callum Robertson scored his first goal in basically the last minute, which was the best cross we saw of the game and probably the best header we saw of the game. It was a, a brilliant cross by Romeo. The spin he got on the ball was was delightful and Robinson was was clear of his, I think he was being marked by three men almost and uh, he was able to put it home. So I think it was a, an encouraging performance in the second half. Um, so, you know, I think more of the same with that and I think we'll be okay under Hudson. Yeah, Justin Vincent Company comes across as quite a calm bloke on the touchline, but he won't be happy to have let this one slip, will he? No, it's the third time in four games that they've dropped a lead um, and dropped points from leading positions. So it's clear that killing games is, is, is uh, has been difficult. But I think with uh, Burnley, they, they've got the quality of players. And because it's a new squad as well, it's going to be a thing that they've got to give time to bed into bed into squad, developing that killer instinct, killer instinct. It's not an easy thing to do. And I think, yeah, as I say, Given time, uh, it will happen as well as that international break. Uh, international break lacklusterness, I think, is the easiest way to explain the 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 yeah the game from a Burnley perspective. Lacklusterness. That's a new one. <laughs> a quick word on Vincent Company's attire in this game as well. He was wearing a black blazer, black trousers, but with a black baseball cap, which I think doesn't mix well with the blazer anyway. But nonetheless, and I think a tracksuit top under the blazer with a big yeah. logo on the front of it. It's like someone said to him, are you a suit kind of manager or a tracksuit kind of manager? And he said, I'm a bit of both, baby. Um, <laughs> but it's been just under a couple of weeks since Steve Morrison was sacked at Cardiff, Ben. Now you've had time to let it sink in. What are you thinking now? I'm still a bit, still in a bit of shock with it all. Really, I think no one saw it coming. Um, I've, I've had a lot, lot of time to think about it. And it's funny because Cardiff under Mick McCarthy, when things were really bad, we went ten games without a win, and it probably came about four games too late that he was sacked. With Morrison, 
things haven't been going too badly. Obviously, results probably haven't been going our way uh, as much as we would like. But most of us were, were content with accepting that this was going to be a bit of a transition season into a new way of, of, of playing football, which is what we were doing. And the results would come in time. And I think they acted really hastily. I think they've said it's on results. And there was talk that if we lost against Middlesbrough, which obviously one of the last games we won uh, away at the Riverside, that he was going to be sacked then. But he wasn't. And then we lost to Huddersfield in a game that could have gone either way. We missed a penalty and he, he got sacked there. And I think it's just, it was very quick, very hasty. But, you know, Steve Morrison has, has shown his spiky side in press conferences, shall we say. And I think there was... Uh, uh, he's not the most personable of characters. And I think there was probably more to it than meets the eye, shall we say. Um, and I think that's probably not played in his favour. Um, and I just think now we just need to, to kind of move past it and, and, and actually decide what we're going to do with our next manager. If it's Hudson full-time or if we're going to go and hire someone else, the decision needs to be made, I think, relatively quickly just to kind of settle the squad and make sure that we're in the best position to go into the, the after the World Cup break. Who do you want to come in for him then? The caretaker, Mark Hudson's reportedly... Given being given the chance to audition mm. for the role, would you be happy with him? If not, who else? So I think I, th I like Hudson. Uh, we we had him on our podcast and interviewed with him, and he talks a really good game. He, he's done all his coaching badges. I think he's put time in at Huddersfield and within the youth setups at um, other clubs. And I think he wouldn't be a bad choice. But it just depends how he does over the next couple of games. Like I said, yesterday was encouraging. I think there was there's stuff to build on from that. But how many games does he get given? If he gets given five games and we lose the next four, then obviously he's not the man for the job. I think if we're looking at external appointments, um, Rob Edwards' name has been um, mentioned. Obviously, he he's left Watford now. He, he did a great job. At Forest Green, I think he plays the kind of football that we want to be seeing and what we're trying to do. So he'd be a, a you know, no compensation. We could get him in relatively quickly. But if I had my choice, I'd probably look at someone like Stephen Schumacher from Plymouth. I think he's doing a great job. He's taken on the Ryan Lowe project and expanded it further. I think he's a progressive manager, and I think he's got a, you know, we, we've got a very good squad at Cardiff. What well, very good? I think we've got a, a ready-made squad that could attack the mid tables into the playoffs if we got a good manager. And I think Schumacher would be a great option to to come in and try and take that on. Interesting. Norwich have now won 22 points from a possible 24. I mean, that's just a ridiculous tally, isn't it? And the latest comes after winning 1-0 away at Blackpool. For the Tangerines, it's four losses from five. Jane, how was the game? It was not really as the result reflects. Um, we were all over them. We, we had this tendency to start matches really rushing out of the blocks. Um, we've got quite a lot of exciting new loan, young loan players uh, from the Premier League. And we looked really exciting straight away and we were attack, attack, attack. And then what always happens with Blackpool really is we're attack, 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 looking great, not scoring. And then we made a mistake at the back. And, and Norwich capitalised on that. You can't give them the ball in front of goal, which is what we did. They went 1-0 up and it shook us a little bit. We came back in the second half and we were attack, 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 looking all exciting again. But again, no fruits from that. So, yeah, it, it, it was a mistake from us. Uh, we dominated play. We looked the most exciting team, very encouraged by the performance. But unfortunately, you've got to get the goals and we didn't do that yesterday. Yeah, Justin Norwich are just in such unbelievable form, aren't they? They're now one point off the top. What sort of reason can you foresee them potentially stopping them from going up once again? Well, if you consider the amount of chances Blackpool created in this game, um, Norwich lacked a, an element of control that Dean Smith will like to instill into his team. So perhaps that is one factor that could let them down. But I think I think the main issue for Norwich is, is themselves at times because this game, for example, I'd, I'd put it into a category of swings and roundabouts sort of game where they do create good chances, Concede a lot of chances themselves, 
um, and they didn't create, uh, they didn't um, convert the chances that they were creating, and they've they've fallen into that trap quite a few times this season. So if they were to not be promoted, it's going to be down to themselves not converting chances great because they've got enough quality in their team. We know that, um, but unfortunately, it's just key times let them down. Um, and yeah, got to give them praise for getting the three points of clean sheet here. But it's a game as, as Jane pointed out could have completely gone a different way for Norwich. Blackpool have had a rather so-so start to the season, haven't they, Jane? What's the general mood like in the fan base about how you're getting on? It's mixed, really. I mean, people always want to be doing better. Um, but we, we've had quite a few big changes, really. We've got the new manager in, and he wants to do things very differently to the old manager in terms of personnel and style of play. has been completely overhauled. Um, the existing players, most of whom we've kept, have had to get used to you know, dealing with a new manager and, and all this this new style of play and everything. So that's that's going to take time. We've got these young players in from the Premier League, some of whom are like 18, 20 years old. It's going to take them time to, to learn and grow and to fit in and understand what the manager wants them to do. We've also had a massive blow in losing Josh Bowler, who was a really, I can't overemphasize what a key player he was for us because he you know, quite possibly kept us up pretty much single-handedly last season. And I think it, it was a big risk selling him. He would have gone for nothing in the summer, but at what cost have we sold him for, you know, X million pounds now? You can't replace a player like that. So so we, we've had a massive overhaul and it's it's going to take time to, to recover from that. But that said, the last three games, we've seen improvement uh, game on game. So that's also encouraging, but it, it is going to take time um for, for for that to gel, I think. Do fans still need convincing about Michael Appleton? Because it wasn't a popular appointment at the time, was it? Well it was a funny one really, because he's been he was our shortest serving manager of all time because he was here ten years previously. He succeeded Ian Holloway, which was never going to be you know and again he succeeded a popular manager this time in, in Neil Critchley who, you know, he was popular at the time he was here, he's less popular now with the with the way he left. Um, but I think because we all loved Critchley so much, for any new manager to come in after a popular manager, it's going to be really hard. And and with the way he left so quickly last time, although we can understand it now, looking back, he wanted to be away from that regime as we did a few years later. So so we get that now. But so it, it, it's taking time. But I, I've heard him speak um, on a couple of occasions, and he's honest and he's open and he's a, he's got a lot of positives that Critchley didn't have. But I think because Critchley broke our hearts because we loved him and we thought he'd be forever and he was here for the you know the long haul and then he just left out of the blue to go and be a number two at Aston Villa. I think people we're broken hearted and it's difficult for us to attach ourselves to another manager when one's just broken our hearts. So it's it's a difficult position for Appleton to be in and and everything being so different, the style of play being different, it's it's tricky. So it's, it's, some fans like him and some fans don't. It's it's there's a lot of conflict really amongst the fans about him. Hmm. Jane and Ben, thank you both for now. We'll come back to you both later to play Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. In the meantime, Justin and I are heading around the grounds and we'll begin with Hull, who decided it was a good idea to set their manager shot at Ovaladze less than nine hours before kickoff. They then went on to lose 2-0 at home to Luton. Ant North Greaves is from the Hull podcast to Hull and back. Ant, what did you make of the game? 
We didn't go into the game with much optimism. Uh, you know, with the the decision to sack Shotter a few hours before the game was was a bit strange. Um, obviously, Paul Dawson ended up getting chucked under the bus because it will be a Shotter system, Shotter training methods that they were using. Um, you know, he's not going to have much time to really stamp his own identity on the side and. I think, you know, having somebody like Dawson who knows the club inside out, we were maybe hoping as a fan base that he could, you know, maybe spare them on, tell the players, you know, what the club means to the fans kind of thing and the effort they need to be putting in, what's expected. Um, maybe get them going back to basics a bit because we just seem to be, you know, a bit of disjointed, very disorganised, static at the minute. Not really playing with any identity and, you know, if we could maybe be a bit defensively solid and then just see what we can do from there. But, you know, same mistakes were appearing again, you know, individual errors trying to play out from the back. Um looking very shaky defensively. But the one good thing is we looked definitely a bit more progressive going forwards, which um, we've not looked in recent weeks at all. Yeah, of course, and this came just hours after the decision to sack Shota Arvaladze. I'm guessing you were surprised by the timing, but were you surprised by the decision or were you even supportive of it? Um, yeah, I was supportive of the decision. I just think the timing was wrong. They should have done it at the beginning of the international break where they had two weeks to find somebody and, and let them come in without the added pressure and of, of a game, you know, to get used to the squad, the players, and, and, and try and get, you know, that new system implemented. Um, not, you know, like you say, a few hours before a, a, a pretty important game against a really good Luton side. Um, I just think the problem with Shotter was we all really liked him, you know, he was a really nice guy, and he did well for us last season with a, you know, a League One McCann Alam squad. Um, and we just haven't seemed to improve under him, you know. We, we were supposed, Adjun, the owner's come out, you know, he's said since he's, he's taken over, he wants exciting attacking football. And Shotter was apparently the guy that was going to bring that. And then we signed ample attacking talent this summer and somehow got worse at attacking, you know. It's it's just, we've, we've kind of regressed under him. Uh, and we definitely need a manager with a bit of championship experience, I think, to try and steer this ship uh, steady. And that brings me very nicely on to who you think will come in next. Do you think it will be a manager who knows the championship or do you think it'll be another manager who's plied his trade over in Turkey? Uh, it's anybody's guess at the minute. Um, you know, speculation rife. I think the fans obviously want to see a manager with championship experience. Um, maybe hiring Shotter and seeing how it's gone this season has been a bit of an eye-opener for him and he's realised he probably needs to go down that route. But considering what he said since he's taken over, you know, you can't blame anybody for thinking that he's going to go for, you know, a Turkish coach or somebody from from that league. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the likes of Rob Edwards has just become available. Carlos Corbin's out there. Whether or not we had the pulling power for someone like Sean Dyche, maybe Scott Parker, you know, we've got, there's managers there that are available and, and, and you know, I think we'd be silly not to go for them. Um, it has to be a manager that, that, that has to be able to, nurture the attacking talent that's in the squad because there's there's such potential with this team and the right manager will definitely unlock that potential in it cheers Ant. justin poor andy dawson finding out the morning of that he was in charge for this game have you ever found out at the last minute that you had to do something important um i was asked at the last minute to take part in a 24-hour uh, endurance running event which Granted, it wasn't the day of. I had a couple of days to mentally prepare myself, but yeah, it wasn't um, it wasn't an ideal uh, lead time to yeah get ready for it, to say the least. It's not great prep, is it? How did you do at the event? Um, I ran forty k in about twelve hours. It wasn't very nice. Forty k. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of k. 
That's a lot of a lot of kilometers, a lot of K, yeah, yeah, a lot of steps, a lot of running, and uh, me crying and dying on the inside. I mean, I'm crying and dying in the inside after I do five K. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about the situation at Hull later in the show, Justin, because this wasn't a great performance, and the only thing to really talk about with them is the manager situation, isn't it? But a solid win for Luton. The technique on that strike by Henry Lansbury, Justin, was just oh beautiful chef's kiss (laughs) yeah it was it was magnificent and I mean I had to watch it three or four times to really understand the physics of how he pulled it off because his body shape was pointing in a slightly different direction as to how the ball went which is obviously all down to techniques why the ball went in the opposite direction because he he cut at it which was absolutely beautiful but considering he's not scored since I think they said 2018 for then uh, for him to then pull that out of the hat was um, yeah quite staggering and Believe it or not, Lansbury used to score quite a few goals for, for Nottingham Forest before he went to Aston Villa. So it's nice to see him back on the score sheet. Not sure about his celebration and then milking of the lawnmower thing at the end there. It was a bit cringe from the uh, summariser. who was asking him the questions in his in his um, interview. Yeah, focusing all, all the attention <laughs> on the celebration weird. as opposed to the screamer he's yeah, exactly. from 30 yards out. <laughs> and Alfred Jones' own goal was also beautiful in terms of its hilarity after just hitting him in the face <laughs> after the crossbar. Um, 14 points from a possible 21 in Luton's last seven games. Not a bad tally at all. After a slow start, they've began to really go marching up the table, haven't they, Justin? Yeah, and this performance summed them up quite nicely where they controlled the game without actually con- controlling the game. Obviously, when you when you say teams control games, you expect them to keep a lot of the ball, a lot of the possession, but obviously Hull had a lot more of the ball in this game. But Luton just kept them at arm's length. It was big brother, little brother stuff, wasn't it? When your little brother was trying to harass you and you just put the put the head on the uh, on the fore, put put the hand on the forehead and just keep them at arm's length. That's all it was here. And um, I wouldn't say it was an easy game, but I wasn't ever. Uh, I didn't ever think Hull were going to get back into it at all. And I think that's just credit to how organised and disciplined Luton were. And tactically spot on as well. They forced Hull into wide areas to put crosses into into the box, which the defenders, central defenders, lapped up quite nicely. It was a really, really, I would say, easy game for them, to be honest with you. Yeah, just a professional game. Exactly. They were good yeah. value for the win. And they've been good value for all the other, all the other results they've had mm-hmm. in this seven-game run now. And they're a side who know how to eke out results because they've got a brilliant manager in Nathan Jones. And that goes a long way into them getting results, doesn't it? But they've also got a great squad with loads of depth. Carlton Morris has been banging them in for fun recently. And that midfield of Jordan Clark, Henry Lansbury, Alan Campbell is full of hard work, industry and also technical ability as well, which probably doesn't get appreciated as, as much with the players I've mentioned. But then also, despite them losing their best defender in Cal Naismith over the summer, the defence doesn't look any weaker at all because all the other players have stepped up. Now, of course, in our pre-season predictions, Justin, I made the somewhat ballsy shout of Luton finishing in the top <laughs> two. I'd say even now it would be a ballsy call, but I don't think you can completely rule it out. But a top six finish and possibly even an improvement on their sixth place finish from last season looks to be well within their rights based on how they've started. And it's just the same old thing again with them, isn't it? Don't underestimate this Luton side. It's something people keep doing, despite this team constantly proving those people wrong. I saw, I keep going back to it, I saw loads of people before the season started saying they'll do a Barnsley this season. It's just an absolute ridiculous call. They're a great side with a great manager and they'll be fancying the chances of 
pulling off another remarkable season right out the bag. After another crazy week in the history of Watford, they managed to beat Stoke 4-0 in Slavon Bilic's first game in charge. Justin, you, had a, you watched this one, didn't you? What did you think of it? It was... I mean, I don't think it was a 4-0 game because I don't think Watford were anywhere near a level... Um, anywhere near uh, anywhere near a level that they, they, they should have been uh, putting in the, the balls and the crosses as they were. I just don't think it was a 4-0 game. But credit to Watford, and that's not a criticism of them. They were super, super clinical. The deliveries from wide areas was brilliant. Um, and then just getting on the end of crosses was, was fairly easy for them. I think that first cross... From Kamara was was beautiful um, right up until the last ball in from Lauser for for Bayo's goal was might have been a shot but it was it was a looping cross on the lease and it, it bamboozled the Stoke players. It was a really easy game in that second half for Watford. Um, they cut through Stoke numerous times and I think the fact that Stoke left so much space in behind the um, the wing backs um, Watford exploited it quite nicely and I think I know I criticised Billich I know I said. He was washed. He was washed up, and perhaps I was a little bit emotional from the Rob Edwards sacking. Um, but actually, to, to give him a fair bit of credit, this wasn't just a game where Watford went into it and and, and, and turned up and won. Um, it was a, there were some good tactical decisions throughout the game. One in particular, I think it was um, Ken Semmer and Keenan Davis switched pressing um, to put more pressure on the centre backs, um, and that led to the third goal, which pretty much killed the game off for Watford. Yeah, it's. In terms of the tactical changes that Billich made, it's really, really interesting because we were talking about whether they'd go back to four at the back, which Billich loved to play at West Brom, and that's what they did. And I was wondering whether it would actually work, but it worked wonders, didn't it? Because I think it just got the best out of the players there. It meant that Saar could go on the right wing instead of having to kind of play as this makeshift striker. And then the two fullbacks, Gaspar was, I think it was his first game um, since moving to Watford, looked comfortable. And Kamara was amazing, even though I always associated him as a wingback. But it just seemed a lot more productive from Watford. And that's not a criticism of Rob Edwards. I still think it was a crazy decision to sack him after just 10 games. But this Watford side looked so much more functional here. And keep in mind, they didn't even have João Pedro in the team for this one. So you can already see instant results here with this Watford team. It is just one game, so we won't get too carried away. But despite the criticism that Watford have had for the, the sacking of Rob Edwards, Bilic is still a very good manager at this level. This is what I was saying in Thursday's episode. And he knows how to get the best out of very talented players. We saw that at West Brom. And if this game is anything to go by, then Watford are once again a side to be feared this this summer because they have got some mm-hmm. very talented players there. It's just about making it all click together. And based on this, it seems like Billich knows how to do that. Um, I did enjoy the Watford fans singing, we'll sack who we want, we're Watford <laughs> FC, we'll sack who we want. Um, how shit must you be? He's still got a job. <laughs> it was my personal favourite. Yeah. Um, big fan of that. Um, what did you make of Stoke in this one, Justin? They were, um, well, I mean, they were dreadful, um, to be absolutely blunt. And I think Alex Neal's in, on, in, in uncharted territory here. Um, he's he's never gone into a job and not had an impact straight away. Um, if you go back to Norwich, there was immediate, immediate success followed up by promotion in the same season. Preston, they were building, but they're still, they were still off to a good start under him. Sunderland, immediate success and then promotion. He's walking into a Stoke team that are a complete shambles. 
And and I go back to it every time, but the recruitment in the summer has just let them down massively because there was a massive lack of balance in the team. And um, that, that was shown with the, with, the, with the wing backs and the amount of times space was exploited in behind. Aidan Flint was um, as slow as we expect him to be. Um, and Watford exploited that. Balls in over the top, balls in behind that. Saar, Semmer and Davis exploited time and time again. Um, and the worst thing for it was Alex Neal didn't have uh, an answer to it. And as I say, I just think he's been let down by the recruitment. They couldn't play the ball through the middle. Liam Delap is way off what we expect him to be. Um, and while they've added good players, unfortunately, if you've had good players, but you're not playing to a style that those players need to be played at, you're not going to get results. Um, and that's why it comes down to recruitment again. You've got to buy players, purchase players, bring players in that are going to fit the team and style. And these players weren't brought in for that. They were brought in because they were good players. And it's like, okay, we best find a way to put, plot them in. And that's what it felt like. It was a disjointed, disorganised, really poor performance, which lacked um, self-belief and confidence. And as well as that, it looked like it lacked effort. And when you get to that level, it's very hard to come back from. Justin, is it down to poor recruitment or is it down to a curse, a witch's curse, <laughs> which is the only explanation I can provide for Stoke consistently struggling despite having good players and good managers. Alex Neal is a fantastic manager at this level, an underrated manager, but he's the fourth good manager who's gone into yeah. Stoke now and struggled. And I just can't provide any other explanation apart from a witch's curse. Um, Great analysis here on the second tier, as always. And one of the other clubs with a managerial change over the international break was Huddersfield. Mark Fotheringham had his first game in charge away at Reading. And it wasn't a good start after they were beaten 3-1. I suppose a sign of just how difficult this job's going to be, Justin. Some of the goals they let in were absolutely comical, weren't they? The second one's gone in off the goalkeeper's back. The third one... He's just embarrassing. Oh I think just about every defender plus the goalkeeper managed to make some sort of mistake in there. It was just really, really bad from Huddersfield. And it is one game. It was fairly disastrous, but it is just one game. So we won't get too carried away. But Huddersfield fans better be hoping that Mark Fotheringham is somewhat of a tactical mastermind, Justin. A tactical mastermind, psychologist, everything a football club needs to get players back in form again he needs to do it all and it's difficult because he's inexperienced as a head coach so he's, he's come into a job where the team's pretty much rock bottom now because that that felt like a rock bottom performance from Huddersfield because the errors they were making very rarely saw on a Sunday morning to be honest with you and it's only that only happened when you drub a team 10 or 12 nil um so yeah that's that's a that's a huge criticism for Huddersfield and what can he do he's 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 gone on record and said he's had five sessions in in three days, um, which is a lot of a lot of time to get your points across. But when players are making individual errors and not doing the basics in football, what can a head coach do? It doesn't matter if you've got Guardiola, Sir Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, or Mark Fotheringham. If your players are if your players are letting you down on the pitch, what on earth can you do? Yeah, he's definitely got his hands full, Antti, because this squad is really poor compared to the team that nearly got promoted last season. You look at the mm -hmm. team that played against Reading, how many of those players would you honestly take if you were the supporter of an opposition club, Justin? For me, you're looking at Lee Nichols, Sorba Thomas, the rest of them, I probably wouldn't thank you for. If Fotheringham is going to keep them up, he needs to get the players more motivated than the other side and yeah. give them more of a tactical edge. Because I struggle to see this team staying up on quality alone. They work hard, 
and a lot of them were good enough to feature in a team that nearly got promoted last season. But the key components of that team, as we keep mentioning, have all gone. And I don't see a lot of talent left in there, unfortunately. So Fotheringham's really, really going to have to pull something special out of the bag, I think, to really turn this ship around. But it could take a while to turn around. Justin, all I've seen on my Twitter timeline in the past 24 hours is you arguing with Reading fans. <laughs> Are you all right, mate? It's just... Okay, um, so I made a point um, on a uh, on a clip that we put out that Reading have a small squad. Um, and Reading fans keep telling me that they don't have a small squad. Now, okay, there is there is more depth there. Um, but okay, for me, it lacks a little bit of quality. And some of that depth is made up of players with a fair bit of injuries. Um, but that lack of depth has been highlighted by the injuries they've suffered to Andy Yeardham and Baba Rahman, who are going to be out over this next um, three or four weeks, which is essentially going to rule them out for potentially 10 games. Um, 10 games in six weeks, that's what we're coming up against. It's almost a quarter of a season. Um, so Reading potentially missing quite a few players. It's not taken away from their win. They were brilliant against Huddersfield. They they, they were. Um, it, it was pretty much a routine win. And when you've got a team playing with that confidence, it means you're in a good place. Um, but I just can't. You just can't hide the fact that Reading have a small squad, which has been exposed a little bit by the injuries to the fullbacks. So how do you think that's going to impact them over the coming weeks? It's going to be interesting. I think we won't know until they start to play. Um, I think they've got Guinness Walker at left wing back who has had a couple of better games than he started. Um, I think if you go back to the opening game of the season, it's pretty much a disastrous debut. Or his debut was, was really poor, if I recall it right. And then I think Junior Hoyle is filling in at right wing back. That could be exposed by opposition. Um, if I'm um, if I'm an opposition manager, I'm going to get my get my winger uh, or wide player to go at Junior Hoyler because I know he's not a a natural defensive minded player, naturally defensive minded player. So that could be exploited. Um, but I think what they've done so far, Reading, is they've managed really really well to to cope without um, some key players. Um, but this is going to be a tough test, as I say. Andy Yeardham's a big player for. Um, for Reading a Bubba Rahman or he's probably gone under the radar actually for past season a bit because he's been very consistent um, for Reading and again missing him could be a big blow they've got a very tricky October Justin I can yeah. tell you that right now just look at their fixtures in October it's pretty much as hard as it will be for any other team this coming month but let's give them full praise to be sat third considering the transfer restrictions they had in the summer and everyone's expectations for them including mm-hmm. ours it's a very very impressive start and Paul Ince deserves so much credit every time they lose I think this is it this is where things are all going to start going wrong but then they follow it up with a win I don't think they're going to maintain it personally I think every level-headed Reading fan will acknowledge that as well um, and I do agree with you that it's a squad not full of depth um, and I simply think there are other clubs with better teams um so where will they end up it's really hard to say i think we'll have a better idea after this month mm. and personally i'd be very surprised if they're still chasing the top six by the time the world cup is here um, because it is a tricky month and it's going to be a massive massive test for them and as injuries start piling up they haven't got the thickest of squads and that's where Results start to downturn for most clubs at this level. Rotherham began life post-Paul Warren with a loss. Wigan beat them 2-0 at home. Some may look at this and think, that's a poor result. A team you've come up with, you lose into at home. 
and maybe not. But when you realise Wigan have got the best away record in the division, <laughs> I mean, who would have guessed that at nearly a quarter of the way through the season, Justin? Now, of all the brilliant teams we've seen so far, Wigan sits top of the pile for the best away record. Yeah, it's, it's quite staggering, isn't it? Um, and almost almost arrogant, I would say. Um, but no, I, well, I Justin, think... Justin, Justin, how about this? Since the start of last season, they've played 28 away games. They've won 18 and have only lost three. That's <laughs> remarkable. Be, yeah, I, I, um, it is interesting um, to, to contrast their home form. I mean, the home form hasn't been bad by any means, um, but it certainly hasn't been good. Uh, as good as their away form it, this season in particular it has been bad but going back to last season is, is what I'm referring to because they haven't won a game at home yet this season um, which is absolutely bonkers but if you've got if you've got a team who are high energy um, who are disciplined and structured like Wigan have I think they're always going to find it easier to uh, to play away from home because the onus is on the home team um, and they've got the quality in place to pick teams off and they did that with Rotherham. Um, I thought they, they 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 were good, they were clinical, they moved the ball better than Rotherham did um, and they looked to exploit the space in behind. First goal summed it up nicely as to how Wigan want to play away from home. Yeah, phenomenal how amazing they are away from home and when you, as you say, when you contrast it to their home <laughs> form, it's very strange. Um, but yeah, without a doubt, Liam Richardson's doing a fantastic job there and they're another team who are going a bit under the radar. I'd be surprised if they're still challenging in the top half of the table come the end of the season, but without a doubt, a great start from them. Rotherham weren't great here. A worrying drop considering how competitive they've been prior to Paul Warren's departure. They had one shot in the entire second half and they were 1-0 down at that point. So it wasn't like they were holding on for a lead or anything like that. Maybe could have been 3-0 to Wigan as well if James McLean had his shooting boots on. We'll talk more about Rotherham's hunt for a new manager in the news, Justin. And that brings us to an end of the first half of the show. In the second half, we'll talk about Coventry's first win of the season and a great game at the Hawthorns. Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast. Coventry finally got their first win of the season by beating Middlesbrough 1-0. But Chris Wilder's side drop into the relegation zone as their poor start to the season continues. Middlesbrough are really poor here, Justin. I've been banging the drum for them, actually playing a lot better than their results suggest. But this wasn't the case here, was it? They were dreadful. Um, And I can't help but think that's down to uh, the selection put out by Wilder um, to be honest with you I think dropping Isaiah Jones and Ryan Giles arguably your two best attacking outlets um, or two best routes of, of creating chances dropping them from well, probably from the just in probably their best players this season as well so far yeah yeah exactly Drop dropping them and um, leaving them out uh, for the reason he did um, he wanted to keep it solid which is absolutely fair um, but you're going away to a team who are bottom of the league um, and you're wanting to keep it solid. No disrespect to Coventry, but if you look at it as plainly as that, it's really, really poor from Chris Wilder. Um, and I've got nothing but criticism for him, uh, for him for those decisions. As I say, best two attacking outlets, a lot of energy in those legs, a lot of um, a lot of ability to get up and down. And actually, them being out of the team made the midfield three look incredibly slow and lacklustre, um, almost cart horsey at times. Um, so yeah, it was it was a dreadful performance from Middlesbrough and. Um, as I say, can only be put down to the the selection he put out. As a, it, was, it was really poor choice from a manager we we rate highly, and you seem to rate as the highest 
best manager in the division. Yeah, and that's still the case, but it's decisions like <laughs> that that only crank up the pressure on Chris Wilder. And it makes mm-hmm. me wonder, Justin, whether he could end up getting sacked. Yeah, in my opinion, if he's, if it wasn't Chris Wilder, he'd be gone already. Um, if, it, if it was any other manager, he would certainly be gone out the door. Um, but at the moment, at this current time, is there someone better than Chris Wilder to come in and, and, and get more out of this Borough team? I don't think there is, um, but at the same time, you could say that about a lot of managers who have lost their job and other managers have come in and actually done better than them. Um, so it, it's really strange, but what can be said is Wilder is slowly losing the supporters um, and that's a very hard thing to bounce back from. And as soon as the supporters have gone and performances are still poor, you're on borrow time. Well, there have been numerous, and I mean numerous reports over the international break about Wilder's frosty relationship with the Middlesbrough hierarchy. Let's be honest, he has got form for this, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. It's the main reason why his time at Sheffield United came to an end. And it feels like we're seeing the same happen here. He's apparently not happy with the recruitment over the summer. Sure, it wasn't spot on, but for me, they still recruited well. And the squad simply should be pushing for the top six at the very least, Justin. You may tilt your head and... Uh, be not in agreement with me on that but you look at the players they should be pushing yeah. for the top six yeah. at the very least shouldn't they I think he's a great manager but it seems like he has a tendency to throw his toys out the pram if he doesn't get his way so I wouldn't be surprised if he did get sacked there are very good managers out there available right now who would love the job and I think Wilder wouldn't mind actually if he did get sacked because I don't think he would be hanging around by the phone for long Justin you laugh yeah. Reports say that yeah. he's apparently been trying to push for the Bournemouth job. Just reports. So not necessarily true. And he certainly denied that in his press conference. But he's a very talented manager, as we all know. And he'll be within a job again in the next year, I'd have thought. So, yeah, it's a bit of a weird time at Middlesbrough. And I wouldn't be surprised to see changes happening in the dugout. But... I thought the same about Coventry not too long ago because it seemed like Mark Robbins was a man under pressure there and wasn't having uh, the best of relationships himself with the Coventry hierarchy. And he admitted it was a much-needed result for his team. This one only adds insult to injury more for Middlesbrough. That Victor Jokerad scored the winner <laughs> after being linked with them all summer. He was great, but Casey Palmer also stood out. Jamie Allen controlled the game well in midfield. Loads of positives here for Coventry and it's the kind of performance which shows why I'm not too worried about them despite the troublesome start, Justin. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I think I raised concerns just before the international break about them needing to get results and if that wasn't the case over this next few weeks, um, then you can start to worry. But actually, I don't think it was quite vintage Coventry in this game um, and they've probably played better this season than they did in this game and obviously come off worse. Um, but this was a Coventry we're more used to seeing. They were they were uh, aggressive. They had an intensity. Um, they they counterattacked really really well at times, um, and that was without some key players as, as well. That was without Hamer, um, which is which is worth pointing out. As you say, Jamie Allen stepped up really well, and Ben Sheaf was was solid. But Doyle and, and Panzo in 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 uh, um, as one of the centre uh, centre halves were really good as well. Um, I mean, it was easier because. Middlesbrough were really, really poor, um, but Coventry, as I say, almost back to almost back to Coventry we're used to seeing. Yeah, hopefully the match fitness problems caused by the pitch palaver mm-hmm. behind them now. The big problem for them is going to be dealing with the backlover games caused <laughs> by that. Between now and November twelfth, they've got eleven games, oh, Justin. God. So eleven games in what forty days or so. 
I mean, I, the maths doesn't... And a game every four days on average is not great, is it, um, for a whole month and a bit. So, yeah, it's going to be a really, really tough period for them. But you'd have thought games like this should give them confidence and they should start to climb off the bottom of the table. There was a great game at the Hawthorns, West Brom at 2, Swansea 3. Swansea were 2-1 down late in the second half, but managed to win thanks to a late winner by Michael Obafemi. And it's three wins from four now for the Swans, Justin, who have finally started going after being another team who didn't have a great start. What are you thinking with them? Yeah, again, I think... A bit like Coventry, I think Swansea have played better this season um, and not quite got results, but they took advantage of a really poor, a really poor display here. Um, and there are some, there are some things you just can't measure, and character is one of them. Um, and for for Swansea to show the character they have, I mean, they've been on the other end of it. Obviously, that Millwall game earlier on in the season where they were two 0 up in the ninetieth uh, minute and conceded two late on, um, but it was the other way around. And you've got to credit. Russell Martin for maintaining that style of play, maintaining the the intensity that uh, Swansea played at, um, and they were clinical. As I say, they kept pushing uh, and they retained the ball well throughout the game, um, and they didn't create a massive amount of chances. Which, you know, to score three goals from seven shots on goal, um, I think is really impressive. Uh, and as I say, it just it's another reminder as to why we think there's a lot of potential under Russell Martin um, and this Swansea team. But I know at some point they will bring you back down to earth. Yeah, winning the game when you only had six shots is, some say that's a bit fortunate, but at the same time, you've got to take your chances and that's not what West Brom have been doing this season, is it? Uh, a big concern for Swansea was the right wing-back situation. For that, um, when Joel Latibodier got injured, it seemed like it was really going to cost him, but it seems to have been resolved now with the introduction of Matthew Sorinolo, who has been brilliant in the last couple of games. Got on the score sheet here as well. Ryan Manning's been showing some of the best form Mm. since he was at QPR a couple of seasons ago as well. But then you've got some really quality players all over the park, haven't you? We're talking about some of the best players in in the positions in the Championship. Matt Grimes in midfield, a Premier League talent. Joel Pirot nearly moved to the Prem in the summer. Nathan Wood's been a revelation at the back. There's a lot to like with this Swansea team and you top it all off with a young, exciting manager in Russell Martin. They could do again a bit tighter at the back and I'm a bit worried about the depth in the squad, but they're definitely capable of finishing in the top six, aren't they? Just because of the amount of talent they've got and a great manager. It's going to take good effort for them to actually do it, but I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, One team whose top six hopes are hanging in the balance is West Brom. Only them and Coventry have failed to win multiple games this season. And one of those teams have only played eight times, may I remind you. The thing is, Justin, this was another game where I don't think they've played too badly. And that's been the case on multiple occasions with West Brom this season. But one win in 11, similar to Chris Wilder, I wouldn't be surprised if Steve Bruce got sacked. Yeah, I completely agree. I've got to say, though, it's ballsy to mention top six and West Brom in the same sentence, given that they are perilously close to the relegation zone. Um, well, Forest were the same last season, <laughs> yeah. Justin, but I, I can't, for some reason, I can't see the same happening with West Brom. No, no, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, if, if, if West Brom fans are going to hold on to any hope, it's that Steve Cooper turned them around almost, turned Nottingham Forest around almost instantly. So if West Brom are going to sack Steve Bruce and bring in another manager, they've got to hope for that sort of turnaround um, but as you say it's, it's hard to see because this team's been underperforming for the last uh, well last year and a bit now um, under Ishmael under Bruce um, but at the same time 
there are decisions that are that Steve Bruce is making that I just don't agree with the persistence to um, to to keep pressing with that uh, with, with the wingers and just keep getting crossed in the box. I just don't think he's working. Not bringing in a number one as well. David Button made another mistake that led to a goal. It's there are things like that. There are little things like that um, that are just working against West Brom. Um, and you can say that's underperformance, but also, also Steve Bruce has got to take a lot of the a lot of the flack for it. Um, and unfortunately, one win in eleven, one clean cheat in six, that is sackable. It's as easy as that. Well, it's the cliche of all cliches, isn't it? But it's a results-based business, and the results quite obviously aren't good enough. And I, I don't think West Brom have been as bad as those results suggest. But at the same time, Steve Bruce's record in his time at West Brom is. Very poor. Just mm-hmm. eight wins from 30 games. But the amount of talent they've got, it's just simply not good enough, is it? And it's always seemed a bit strange getting Steve Bruce in anyway. I think the hierarchy were probably thinking to themselves, he might not be the best option, but he should be good enough to get them fighting for promotion. And that's clearly not happening. I don't think he's as bad as manager as he is often joked about online, but it's very difficult at this stage to make a case for him staying, especially when... There are some good managers available who West Brom, I imagine, will probably be having an eye on at this point. My concern is, I'm not sure I trust this ownership of making the right decision (laughs) in Steve Bruce's successor if he were to get sacked. But without a doubt, I think if I was in charge of West Brom, I'd sack Steve Bruce at this point because I don't think things have actually got any better in the time that he's there. They brought in some good players in the summer and it's just not working, is it? There needs to be a change Um, because it's not getting any better anytime soon, unfortunately. QPR made it four wins from six after beating Bristol City 2-1. First goal was so unlucky for Bristol City, coming off the back of Dan Bentley and falling right to Stefan Johansson. Town of Oberts got his first QPR goal, though. Justin, any further thoughts on this game? Yeah, I mean, it was a really weird game. I think just before QPR took the lead, um, uh, Dieng pulled off a really good save from Zach Viner. Um, three minutes later, QPR score, and three minutes after that, um, they score again and just take the wind out of Bristol City sails. Um, so I think it was, uh, yeah, and also the, 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 I mean, the fortune of that first goal as well is, is very unfortunate. So I think, from Bristol City's perspective, context of the game worked against them. Um, they weren't at their best when they went down, but when the when you get punched in the gut like that, it's not easy to bounce back from. QPR were really good, but I really want to mention Stephanie Hansen. Um, I think he's having his best season in a QPR shirt. Uh, I think he's having his best season since um, Fulham's promotion season in 2017-2018. He's been absolutely fantastic in that double pivot, in that 4-2-3-1 that Beale is playing. Um, And he's actually been directly involved in five goals in the last six games, which, I mean... Stephanie Hansen, when when can we talk about that sort of um, output from him in in a QPR shirt? And it's as many as uh, as his previous football games before that. So he's he's been absolutely brilliant. And uh, as I say, best football he's played probably in about five years. Yeah, I I, I agree with you with that. I also think Sam Field alongside him has yeah fa- been fantastic. He's such an underrated player at this level. I mean, looking at some of his stats, he's just blowing other midfielders out the water. So those two definitely deserve a lot of praise. But I think McBeal is doing a fantastic job at QPR and here. They sit fifth in the table. They're going under the radar. And while I still think more teams are, there are other teams more likely to finish in the top six at the time of recording. I think they're a side who can always make a good fist of it. And as we say, the early signs with McBeal is that he's a really promising 
your good young coach, isn't he? Mm-hmm. It's also not a good look for Steven Gerrard that Villa are struggling after he left and keep you off <laughs> flying. <laughs> so make of that what you will. Uh, while recording the stopwatch show for our friends at Fansbet in the week, dear listener, Justin Peach declared that his most concrete prediction for the season would be for Bristol City <laughs> to get into the top six. Uh, that was right, wasn't it, Justin? It was a questionable thing to say at the time, even more so now that they've lost three games in a row. Right. Like I said, and this is why this is why I put it in there, the context of the game worked against them. If Senny Dieng doesn't make that same from Zach Viner, Bristol City wins 6-0 and they go on to win promotion this season. That is as concrete as crystal ball as I can put out. Uh, and I am crushing at straws massively because 6-0 is a big boast. Um, but as I say, I just think the win got taken out of Bristol City sales massively. They didn't react particularly great um, after going 2-0 down. Um, and they've got to find a much better balance between their attack and defence. And if they do, they are a concrete prediction for a top six push. But it's about finding that balance. So technically, they might not be a concrete prediction because it's on. It's based on a what-if. So look, I'm sticking by it. If. Yeah, I'm sticking by it. And and when they do, I'm, I'm going to laugh. I'm just going to laugh. I'm just going to record I myself think- for an hour laughing. I think you should nip to Wilco and get some window cleaner for your crystal ball, mate. Um, (laughs) For me, some things never change with Bristol City. And that's been the case in many different ways. They go on a good, promising run of form and immediately follow up with an equally terrible run of form. We saw that. We're seeing it right now, in fact. Three losses on the bounce. Sure, there have been some tricky games in that time, but... I don't think they particularly deserved anything from those games. And they were really good in the run prior to this run they're on now. But it just happens again and again, the inconsistency. They're, in, they're consistently inconsistent. And that's been the case for now for a number of years. And despite signing Kel Smith and Mark Sykes to try and bolster that defence, it's still a problem. They've now conceded the second most goals in the division, Justin. And when, when it keeps happening like this... I always point the fingers at Nigel Pearson, but I don't see who else you can point the fingers at because I do think this Bristol City squad is, it has got some very good players in it. But the same problems keep cropping up again and again. And when that keeps happening, then Bristol City aren't going to go anywhere, are they? And Mm -hmm. that's just the fact of the matter, really. Sheffield United won, Birmingham won. Birmingham became the first team to stop Sheffield United winning at home this season. What a result for Blues, Justin. Yeah, they were they were really good. Um, this was a very good away performance, and, and something that needs to be praised quite quite massively, which I'm sure will surprise Blues fans who think we have a grudge against them. Um, but they were incredibly disciplined, they were organised, and they had a lot of energy, which I think maybe caught Sheffield United by surprise. Hecking Bottom admitted in his post match press conference that Sheffield United just didn't have the legs to to compete with Birmingham um, for the 90 minutes in this game. Um, and uh, as I say, it showed they've they've got a lot more. In them as well, Birmingham City, um, and they had to they had to be gritty, they had to be sturdy, um, and and they were they they pushed for the result, they bounced back quickly as well. McBurney scored uh, at just after the hour mark, and then Deeney scores five minutes after that. Um, which again, you've got to credit Eustace for turning around not only the playing style of the team but also the mindset because it's pretty much the same team, give or take one or two players um, that Lee Bowie had last season, and they crumbled, they crumbled quickly. Um, and you've got to praise John Eustace for, for turning that around because it's harder to change a mindset than it is a philosophy. 
Yeah, it's definitely a solid start for Birmingham Inter. Tariff Chong was excellent in midfield. He gives this team so much more creativity going forwards. Troy Deeney tops it off with his best game I've ever seen him have in a blue <laughs> shirt. He, he struggled since moving there in the summer of last year, hasn't he? But he was bullying the Sheffield United defence at times and deserved his goal. For Sheffield United, no Ahmed Dozovic meant Sheffield United had to shift to a 4-3-3, which isn't obviously their uh, favourable formation. Ollie McBurney scored again! Five goals in six games. How can a striker go from failing to score in 21 months to doing this? It's absolutely crazy. But still 10 games unbeaten for the Blade to remain top of the table. Blackburn 2, Millwall 1. Millwall a shambles at the back here at times. Nothing, not something you usually associate with them, but has happened a couple of times this season, it's got to be said. The most interesting thing from this game for me is the ongoing quest for Zion Fleming's first goal. Millwall's new signing over from Holland is averaging the most shots per game in the division by quite a distance, Justin, but he's yet to score and missed an open goal in the 91st minute here. He really should have a goal uh, from their last game as well before the international break. So it's cruelly quite funny that he's yet to have found the back of the net yet. Uh, but a good win for Blackburn, wasn't it? Their last six results read loss, win, loss, win, loss, win. So inconsistent to say the very least. And then the final game of the weekend was Sunderland nil, Preston nil. The sixth time Preston have had a goalless draw this season. They really are the great entertainers of this division, aren't they? Right, now it's time for this. Yes, it's time for the news. And Shota Alvaladze has been sacked by Hull. It's after a run of four straight losses. And it happened less than nine hours before kickoff of their game on Friday night. Justin, why, oh, why didn't they do it at the start of the international break? Yeah, it's quite strange. I mean, there might be the logical, uh, logical, uh, well, reasoning. Um, well, obviously, Ilakali's, um motorcycle accident or his accident which he had to have surgery on his arm um so that may have delayed things but there are people running the club who can make those decisions you'd have thought um which is yeah it's, it's, it's a strange one and as i say to do it such a short time before the game um is strange considering we've had two weeks where you we, where you can get it done um it makes sense to get it done i mean i thought watford left it late with edwards just a few days before, um, or, or yeah, several days before the game against Stoke, um, so to do it nine hours, eight, eight nine hours before kickoff is uh, an astonishing level of last-minute behaviour. Yeah, apparently it was because of meetings, which stopped them from <laughs> doing it earlier. I don't know what these meetings were about, but I'd be very interested to know the minutes from those meetings. Uh, but in terms of the actual decision, as we say, not a surprise, is it? We were talking about it basically for the two weeks during the international break that he really should have been sacked. Um, and in a way, if I was a Hull fan, I'd be happy that it has happened because things were just not going well. I just won't be happy that it happened nine hours before kickoff. Um, yeah, but things, since he's come in, have things actually got better since Grant McCann got sacked? I don't think you can say they have. Obviously, we see that now with them flirting with relegation in the championship I think a new manager will get them up the table but it's it's going to have to take a big improvement in performances particularly at the back because defence mm-hmm. I've struggled to recall a 
championship side being as woeful at the back as Hull have been in these first 11 games. It's been absolutely abysmal and just calamity goal after calamity goal. So that's going to be the first thing the new manager has to try and implement, which brings me nicely on, Justin. So what do Hull do next? The concern at the moment is, are they going to go for another manager who's plied his trade over in Turkey? Or do you think they should go for a manager who has more championship experience? It's very Graeme Sooners of me to say they should go with a manager who has championship experience. Um, but on this, in the, in the context of Hall, I, I think that's the, the, the route they've got to go down. Um, obviously, when you consider that Carlos Corbran and Scott Parker are available, no, I don't like Scott Parker, but he could get this team a lot more solid. He, he does do that with his sides. You know, get some stop stopping the conceding chances, albeit very boring in possession. But the two names, um, the two two names from Turkey, I've, I've seen mentioned, Sergen Yalsin and Ersin Yanal, haven't had experience outside of Turkey. So to throw two managers in who haven't experienced other countries managerial wise, I think is a big risk considering colour, bottom for goals conceded, bottom for um, xG conceded, bottom for shots faced. Um, and set-piece goals conceded as well. It's such a big risk to throw in a manager who um, is coming into a league that will eat you alive um, if you're not ready. you only got to ask the likes of Marcus Schopp, um, other managers who haven't experienced a championship, please throw them my way. But there are there are a lot more examples of, of, of that not happening. So for me, they've got to go for a manager who, um, yeah, who, who, who knows what the league's about, but also can get teams organised. Um, and so for me, the two mentions I would the two the two names I would suggest would be Carlos Corbin and Scott Parker. Yeah, you might not be a big fan of Scott Parker, Justin, which is completely understandable. But I mean, two promotions from two seasons in the championship, you know, yeah. speaks for itself, doesn't yeah. it? So, yeah, it'd be very sensible, I think, if they did go down that way. But I'm not sure which way they're going to go at the moment. I think it's very fifty fifty. On to Rotherham's hunt for a new manager. They've been given permission to speak to Exeter manager Matt Taylor. It comes after the journalist Alan Biggs says there's a real shock at Rotherham after Cambridge boss Mark Bonner rejected them to stay at Cambridge. The Millers were reportedly fixed on him and hadn't considered anyone else, which is quite interesting. But sure, not just in Matt Taylor from Exeter. Is that the right call for them? He's, he's been at Exeter for a while. Um, finally got them promoted last season um, from League Two into League One. Um, so he does have managerial experience, obviously, which Wood and Lee Peltier uh, currently lack. Um, Exeter do sit mid-table, have had a good start to to League One. Um, by I'd say by their standards, you look at Forest Green, who probably have a much bigger budget than them. Forest Green sit in 22nd, um, whereas Exeter are, are a lot higher in the table. So, yeah, he's, he's clearly got some now. Um but I think them going down this route is probably a better option for them rather than going after managers that they've gone for before, like Kenny Jacket and Steve Evans. Um, it presents, I think it presents less of a risk. And also, if Rotherham do go down, um, they know they've got a manager who has promotion experience, has experience of League One uh, and League Two that they can turn to to, to rebuild. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's probably um, the best option for them at this current point. If, if that makes sense. No, I completely agree with you, Justin. I think um, you look at what managers Rotherham can realistically attract. It says a lot that you've got someone like Mark Bonner who's rejecting them. Um, but if they do manage to get in Matt Taylor, then I think that'll be a great appointment for them. I'm not saying it's going to keep them up and they're going to go flying up to the Premier League in the near future. But realistically Rotherham don't have a big budget they can't go out there and offer a big fat contract to a big name so they've got to 
really pull off something special. Mm. And I think Matt Taylor has done wonders at Exeter so far, so it makes complete sense. Transfer news, Blackpool have signed midfielder Liam Bridcut on a free. Yeah, all right then. Watford midfielder Iman Lauser has signed a new deal, keeping him at Vicarage Road until 2028. The 23-year-old Morocco international made 20 Premier League appearances for the club last season after arriving from Nantes on in the summer of last year. Uh, I think he played his first game against Stoke after yeah. having a knee injury or a knee operation over the summer. Huddersfield have been fined £70,000 following a pitch invasion after their playoff semi-final win against Luton. It's after a elderly Luton fan left with a head injury after a coin was thrown at him at the end of the match. Championship legend Roger Johnson is the new manager of Brackley Town. His assistant is fellow championship legend Stephen Ward, a pairing I thoroughly enjoy, Justin. I swear Roger Johnson's been at Brackley Town for ages because even to this day, I think he still appears on free agent lists on Football Manager um, and Brackley Town is always on there. But absolutely a dream team for, for many, many Midlands-based supporters. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've got no, not much else to say other than good luck to them. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Stephen Ward's flying performances for, for Wolves and less so at, uh, um, at Burnley. And Roger Johnson, yeah, was possibly one of the biggest championship flops ever, I think, at Wolves. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, fair, fair play. Good good luck. It's a bit harsh. Roger Johnson had a good career. Well, okay career. Dived quickly. Dived very, very quickly. Fair enough. I think you may be getting Brackley mixed up with Bromley. I Bro- think he was maybe. playing for Bromley. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very easy mistake to make. <laughs> and finally, the new FIFA's out, Justin. Can you guess who the highest rated championship player is on this year's game? Uh, it's Mario Saw, surely. Close. It's Watford right back Mario Gaspar. Who's <laughs> what? Rated, yeah, that's what I thought as well. Um, he is rated seventy-eight. Um, well, Ismail Saw is seventy-seven, and Middlesbrough goalkeeper Zach Stefan, who's also rated seventy-seven. I'm not sure. Um, I would have gone with that after. Um, his performances so far for Middlesbrough, <laughs> but he may put me wrong. Right now it's time for the polls. This is the part of the show where we give the listeners three questions on Twitter because we want to get their thoughts and everything to do with the championship. The first question was this, which available manager would you most want to take at your club? Carlos Colbrand, Sean Dyche, Rob Edwards or Scott Parker? I'd go with Sean Dyche. He's, he's the safest pair of hands in that group, isn't he? You know what you're going to get from him. Um, you just got to get used to playing 4-4 effing 2, haven't you? Yeah, Dyche is the obvious winner here. 61% said him, 90% said Corbyn, 13% said Edwards, only 7% said Scott Parker. I oh, imagine surprise. he'll be very annoyed about that. Uh, will Slavin Bilic be a success at Watford, yes or no? It's, it's easy to come out, uh, come in after a 4-0 away win. Um, and what, what defines success at Watford? Keeping your job longer than six, seven months? By that count, probably, yeah, he will be. I suppose success would actually be getting them promoted, keeping them in the Premier League. I tell but, you what, would it be around that long is, a, is another question. If Billich doesn't get Watford promoted and he's still in a job, that is success. That's not going to happen though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> 57% of people said yes, he would be a success. 43% said no. And finally, what's the best county to go to for a holiday in Britain? Cornwall, Devon, Dorset or Norfolk? Dorset. If you say anything else, you're an absolute, I don't know, something offensive. It's got to be Dorset. Well, 
you're offending 59% of our listeners, Justin, who said Cornwall. No, uh, 19% said Devon. Dorset actually finished last with 10%, 12% said Norfolk. The Jurassic Coast is in Dorset, as is Stonehenge. You, Cornwall is so overrated, it is unreal. Um, I think Stonehenge is in Wiltshire, Justin. That's, that's Dorset. I'm sure it's in Dorset. No, I don't think it is. Carry on. <laughs> Geography lesson, here we go. But yeah, as I say, you've got Jurassic Coast, there's the sandbanks in Dorset. Stonehenge lovely, is lovely. In, it's in Wiltshire. Whatever. It's still that corner of the world. Um <laughs> Honestly, as I say, Dorset, I don't know what people are thinking. But you could not be more wrong. Right now, it's time for this. Hi, Simon Grayson here. Yes, it's time for Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. Welcome back to the show. Ben James from View from the Ninian and Blackpool writer James Stewart. So I'm going to ask the guys here to name eight of a certain subject and all they've got to do is work together to name all eight. So, for example, if I would say name the last eight goal scorers in World Cup finals and Ben would say Mario Goetze, that's one down and Jane would say Andres Iniesta, that's another down. But if Justin would say Connor Salmon, then he'd be out. <laughs> so what you need to do is give me all eight answers without all of you being eliminated so more than a quarter of championship clubs have already changed manager this season 11 games into the season but can you name for me the first eight managers to be sacked or leave their position in the championship last season bit of a memory test this one um ben we'll kick things off with you can you name me one of the first eight managers to be sacked or leave their position last season oh um i think I, I, I don't know if this is right, but I'm just going to have to go for it because it's home territory. But I'm going to say Mick McCarthy. Cardiff. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he was the oh. second manager to be sacked after Cardiff lost. Cardiff lost eight games in a row. Um, Jane, your go? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't even, I couldn't even give you a name. Fair enough. Oh. We'll take that down as a Jane's out there. That means it's down to Ben and Justin already. Jeez. You've got one out of eight so far, guys. Justin, your go. Oh god, yeah, no, this is this is hard. Um if, uh, Neil Warnock with Borough. Yes, he became the fourth manager to go when Borough were fourteenth in the table. Okay. Um Ben, your go. Oh, this is really tough. Um I'm trying to think of championship clubs, let alone championship clubs that sacked their manager last season. Um, oh, I, have, I, I don't really have a clue. Um, Sheffield United? I need the manager, unfortunately. Oh, the manager. Who did they get rid of? Sorry. Um, they replaced <laughs> him with... Oh, God, I can't even remember who the manager was. Um, no, I'm going to have to... Honestly, this is so hard. It is. Simon Grayson has been particularly hateful this week. That means yeah. it's down to just Justin Peach. You've got six to go, Justin. Good luck, mate. Okay, so the one Ben was missing was Slavisi Ikanovic. Yes, fifth manager sacked when Sheffield Compl United was 16th in the table. I completely uh, forgot about him. Yeah, so I'm glad I can help be honest. <laughs> To be honest, I looked at some of these and it feels like an age ago since mm. some of these managers were actually managing in the championship. Um, five to go, Justin. So Neil Warnock was a fourth one. He went in November, um, which means there'll be a bit of hangover. Um, so 
I'll go with Frankie McAvoy at Preston. Frankie McAvoy was the sixth manager to lose his job when Preston were 18th in the table. You'll go again, Justin? Oh, Christ. Um, I don't know. Now I'm panicking. Uh, <laughs> I'll go with um, Grant McCann. Yes, yeah, seventh manager sacked after winning two games in a row, which seemed a bit harsh and seems even more bizarre now that alvaladji has gone. Um, Justin, you have three remaining. So he went in January and Ishmael closely followed him in February. So I'll go with Ishmael with West Brom next. Yep. Eighth manager to go after winning just one in seven games. Two remaining. So he got promoted last season. Uh, Bournemouth, Scott Parker. Uh, then there was... who I can't remember who got promoted or relegated last season. Um, Derby, Paunovic, Paunovic, Paunovic. Velko Panovic was sacked two weeks after Valerie and Ishmael, so you are out, Justin. <sighs> the managers you were looking for, I, I cannot believe no one said this. Chris Hewton, first manager to be sacked. Oh my God, yeah. Place with Steve Cooper. Come on, guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Chris Hewton exists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, I can completely understand you guys not getting because his time in the championship was so forgettable. Marcus Shop. Of Barnsley, oh. third manager to lose his job after one win in 15 games. But yeah, he, that was completely forgettable. Uh, but unfortunately, guys, you've fallen foul to Simon Grayson's hate for late. So not a good week for us here on the second tier. But we'll see how everyone gets on again next week because we'll be back again on Thursday for another roundup of all the championship games in midweek. Um, here on the second tier. So we look forward to seeing you again then. But a quick thank you to our guests on the show this week, Ben James from the Cardiff Podcast, View from the Ninian. Thank you for your time today, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Always enjoy it. Also with us was Blackpool writer Jane Stewart. Thank you for your time today, Jane. Oh, you're very welcome. I Can I just plug the Blackpool fanzine now? That's a title called Progress, uh, which, which hasn't been mentioned here. So I thought I'd just slip that one in at the end, which I edit. You absolutely can. Uh, this has been the Second Tier Podcast. We'll be back again on Thursday. I've been Ryan Dilks. Now we're just in peach. Big thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.